0: Magic among the Israelites. The most perfect and reliable history of divine and human nature, of divine revelation and influence through divine or pious God like men, is to be found in the records of the ancient Hebrews in Holy Writ. The Bible has, with truth, been called the Holy Scriptures for it contains the knowledge of that which is holy, agreeing as it does with immovable laws, and combining and interweaving deeds and laws, words, and actions. It shows the true connection of man with the Almighty. It has the most intimate connection with the profoundest truths of the intellect and the senses. It speaks of the origin of the universe and of laws, according to which all things were created, of the history of man before and after the deluge of his future destiny and the means of attaining to it, of the living and invisible agents which God employs towards the great work of salvation, and lastly, of the highest of all beings, the Savior, who combined in his person all divine powers and actions, whilst those who had gone before him were but the representatives of single powers and perfections. It shows to fallen man the light and radiant goal of his life, and prescribes all the various actions of purification and regeneration. Having seen among the nations of the East the stages of magic, the degrees of development in somnambulism and clairvoyance, and the most varied modes of producing unusual effects, we shall now see all this among the Israelites, but in a perfectly different character. In the former, it was self and the present. In the latter, it is no longer the individual which is influenced by magic, but humanity and the future. There the light shines from the natural powers of man, though often excited by artificial means even of the lowest description. Here a pure, unclouded, calm light is seen, greatly influenced by the breath of God, and illuminating the future, to which all life and being tends. To the Israelitish seer, the fate of individuals was not only revealed, but of whole nations, even of the human race, which is guided, as it were, in a magical manner to its development and the great end of reconciliation with God, which in the Old Covenant takes place in an almost instinctive somnambulic manner. In regarding, first of all, the history of the Old Covenant, we see this remarkable people standing alone like a column of light in the obscurity of pagan night. If we find in the noblest men who, in other nations, strove to attain to perfection, uncertainty, and doubt, the men of God show the impression of confident truth, representing the higher powers by living words and deeds, by proofs which separate life and death, truth and falsehood. And where the remains of other nations show only theories or adaptations, we find here a continuous chain of events and actions, a living and divine assistance. The sacred writings speak of all this with a connectedness, with a dignity and perfection that no other nation's history interwoven with fables can show. The Bible contains the light which shines through all the clouds of life. It is the foundation of all human actions the guiding star of the earthly to eternity, of material to divine things, the means and end of knowledge. It is the first of the three great lights which guide and rule our faith. The Bible is also of greater weight to our subject than all other records, and I shall therefore quote some of the passages which have reference to the principles as well as the practice of magnetism especially as regards the healing of the sick according to Biblical precepts. Those regarding dreams may be first mentioned. A. The Old Covenant The dreams mentioned in Holy Writ are extremely numerous and remarkable, for those voices with which God spoke to the chosen men and prophets were usually heard during sleep. Thus, as Moses shows, the visions of the first men were during sleep. Numbers 12.6 And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I the Lord will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak unto him in a dream. Job 33.15 In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed. 1 Kings three five. And Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Genesis 20, three six. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Genesis 31.24 God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night, and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good nor bad. Joseph's dream concerning his brethren is very remarkable. Genesis thirty-seven five. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren. And they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, "Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us?" And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold the sun and the moon, and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him, and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? History proved that Joseph, after he had been sold by his brethren to the Egyptian merchants, was in reality, at a later date, their king at the court of Pharaoh. Joseph's power of expounding dreams is shown by his explanation of the dreams of the king's cupbearer and baker, as well as Pharaoh's dreams of the seven fat and lean cattle, and the seven full and withered ears of corn. In the New Testament, instances of dreams in which God spoke to the faithful are not wanting. Thus an angel announced to Joseph in a dream that Mary had conceived and would bear the Savior of the world. And afterwards that he should flee to Egypt with the child to escape the murderous designs of Herodias. God also commanded the three wise men to return by another way from Bethlehem and not to see Herodias. Matthew 2.12 Visions often appeared to the apostles by night. For instance, that Paul should go to Macedonia, and Acts 18.9, we find, Then spake the Lord to Paul in a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. There are many similar passages, Acts 23.11, 27.23, etc., Let us commence with the Mosaic account of the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In this is contained the original principle. God is an uncreated being. The heaven and the earth were first created. The contrast being created by God. As of a second creation, Moses speaks of light and darkness. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Here too, light is spoken of as being created, but having its opposite in darkness. The ancient Egyptian belief regarded night as the commencement of all things, and the words used by Moses express a similar idea. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. But if the Egyptian belief is to be regarded as of very early origin, the error must have arisen from the fact that they have imagined the night as actually having existed before the day, as the Persian regarded the light as having been created by God before darkness. The light was created with the darkness as its natural contrast, As Moses clearly says, And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. The Bible shows another contrast in the first forming of the world, namely in the water and the spirit. The water as matter, as the germ of organization, and the spirit, the Elohim, the fructifying principle. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. One sided views on this point have led the earliest philosophers to many errors and false explanations. Thus, Thales imagined everything to proceed from the water and overlooked the spiritual activity, which from his time all the defenders of materialism have also done. The other view is to consider everything to be spiritual and matter as but a dead weight. This has been the case with all spiritualists and defenders of the world of spirits from the earliest ages. Moses, therefore, shows that he is raised far above all disciples of the Egyptian temple knowledge, or the modern theorists, as illuminated by the divine light. He does not regard the subject from a distorted point of view, but represents it in its true form and worth. He places the spirit beside matter. Moses has, moreover, excellently described the creation, as the separation of the water and the dry land took place the gradual growing of herbs and plants which propagated in the earth, of fruitful trees which carried their own seed, of the living creatures which inhabited the waters and the birds under the heavens, and the beasts of the earth, each one according to its kind. How God made man, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. The Mosaic Eden is the habitation of the original, purely created man, within whose reach grew the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The symbol of the serpent shows the nature of man's fall. I have already spoken of the original purity and natural wisdom of man when treating of his life in God. This is the place to make a few observations according to biblical principles. For this purpose, a mystical, interesting work will be useful— from which the following is taken. It is called Meticon, printed at Frankfurt in 1784. It is a scarce book, and its theories have much similarity with the Brahmanic doctrines. Through this divine origin, as the immediate reflection of God, Adam was not only the highest step of creation, having precedence of all others by the impress of divine power, for his being was not derived from any mother but he was a celestial Adam created by God himself, and not originating in the flesh. And by his nature he enjoyed all the attributes of a pure spirit, surrounded by an inscrutable covering. This was not the present body of the senses, which is but a proof of his degeneracy, a coarse husk under which he shelters himself from the attacks of the elements. His garment was sacred, simple, indestructible, and of imperishable nature. In this condition of a perfect glory, in which he enjoyed the most perfect happiness, he was destined to reveal the power of the Almighty, and to rule over the visible and the invisible. In the possession of all natural rights and insignia of a king, he was able to use all means to fulfill this his elevated destiny, for as a combatant for unity he was assured against all outward attacks by his inward and outward nature as his covering, whose germ is still in us, made him invulnerable. One advantage of the original man was that no poison of nature or the power of the elements could affect him. In the regeneration of man, Christ promised the apostles, and all who should follow him, this invulnerability. He also carried a fiery, two-edged, all-piercing lance, a living word, which united all powers within itself, and by means of which he could perform all things. This lance we find mentioned by Moses, Genesis 3.24. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Under this sword is understood the living word, which man originally possessed and will only regain in his regeneration and return from rude outward sensuality. It is the word of which it is said, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of souls and spirits, and of joints and marrow. The Hunover, or word of power, of Zoroaster is remarkable in its resemblance to this, by which Ormazd conquers Araman and all evil. To proceed with our quotation. In this condition of regal dignity and power, man might, as the living image of his father, whose representative he was, have enjoyed the purest happiness if he had remained in Eden. Instead of ruling the senses and striving for the spirit to which he was destined, he was filled with the unfortunate idea of confusing the cardinal points of light and truth. That is, he lost the light of truth in the darkness. Losing sight of the bounds of that kingdom over which he was to govern, he confined himself to one portion, the senses whose manifold light dazzled him so that he forgot all else, and flattering himself that he could find the light otherwise than in its original spring. He fixed his lustful eyes upon a false being, was enamored with the senses, and became himself sensual. By this failing, he sank into darkness and confusion, the consequence of which was that he had transferred the light of the sun to a night of many small twinkling stars, and now felt a nakedness of which he was ashamed. This misuse of the knowledge of the connection between the worlds of spirit and matter, according to which man wished to make the spiritual material and matter spiritual, is a breach of marriage, of which that which since has been carried on with woman is but a shadowing in consequence. Through sin man lost not only his original habitation, and was obliged to go the way of the flesh, but he also lost that fiery lance, and with it all that had been before him made invincible and all-seeing. His sacred garments now became a material covering, and this mortal, destructible body no longer defended him against the elements. The mind also shared in the confusion of the weaker half of the body, and inharmonic sounds were heard in the dark realms of the world of spirits. Although man sank deeply through sin, yet a hope of restoration was left him under the conditions of a perfect reconciliation. Without this reconciliation, he sinks deeper and deeper, and the return becomes more difficult and dangerous. In this reconciliation, however, he must inspire himself and avoid the seductive attraction of the senses, and endeavor to gain the beneficial influence of a higher power through prayer, without which he cannot inhale one breath of a purer life. To gain this reconciliation, man must gradually conquer and cast from him all that which obscures his true inward nature, and holds him back from his original state. For man neither can nor will be at peace with himself and nature till he has overcome everything that is inimical to his own nature, and has conquered his enemies. This can, however, only take place when he has retraced that path in which he diverged from his original state. He must therefore gradually free himself from the influence of the senses by an heroic life. And like a wanderer who has many mountains to cross, always climb upwards, till he has gained that goal which is lost in the clouds. Overcoming one obstacle of time after another, he must dispel the clouds between himself and the true sun, so that at length the rays of light may reach him without hindrance. The following is purely biblical, without resemblance to the Brahmanic teachings, God has, however, given us help and assistance to gain this reconciliation. They were inspired agents whom God always awoke to reclaim man from his errors. But man only gained perfect reconciliation through the Savior of the world, who at once perfected and represented that which those agents had but partially and individually performed. Through him his powers are first roused and heightened. Through him he approaches the sole true light the knowledge of all things, and especially of himself. If man endeavor to use this preferred help, he will certainly gain his end and become so certain of this himself that no doubts are able to turn him from his destination. If he raise his mind to that degree of purity in which it becomes united with the divine nature, he is able to spiritualize his being to such a degree that the whole realm of the soul is so clearly shown to him that he feels the presence of God nearer than he had ever imagined it possible. All things are possible to him, because he can make all powers his own. And in this harmony and unity with the fullness of activity, the inspired instruments of God, Moses, Elias, even Christ himself are revealed to him, and being surrounded by thoughts, he no longer requires books. In short, man can here reach such a degree of perfection that death has only to remove the coarse husk when his spiritual temple may become visible, and he live and act forever. It is when he has passed through the valley of darkness that by every step he gains increased existence, intenser power, purer atmosphere, and a more extended horizon. His spiritual being tastes more delicious fruits, and at the termination of his earthly life nothing intervenes between him and the harmony of those spheres, of which the senses only give a faint idea. Without the distinction of the sexes, he will commence the angelic existence, and possesses all those powers of which below he had seen but emblems and symbols. He will then enter that eternal temple, the source of all power, from which he had been banished, and Christ will then be the everlasting high priest. Hebrews 7.17-24.25 Man will then not only enjoy his own gifts, but also participate in the gifts of all the chosen who constitute the council of the wise. That holy prince will then be even more elevated than he was here below. Without rising or setting of the sun, without change of day and night, without innumerable languages, all beings will at the same moment read the holy name of the eternal book, from which springs life for all beings. Hebrews 12.22.23 Here also we find a resemblance to ideas of Zoroaster when he speaks of the celestial companies, of the eternal sacrifices of Ormazd and his servants, and of the participation of each servant of Ormazd in the sacrifices and prayers of the others. I have not made any remarks upon the preceding extract on account of its clearness and truth, and from the fact that it seemed to me suitable to this work as showing that only pure and truly Christian men can do the miracles which Christ promised them, and see visions of which the material worldly man cannot even have an idea. Regarding the appearances and proceedings which have a magnetical character so copiously recorded in the Bible, I shall make extracts of the most remarkable. The first is found in Adam. Moses says Genesis 2.21. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. The question now arises, what kind of sleep was this? The answer is, a deep sleep. It must, therefore, either be a sleep of death, or lethargy, or ecstasy, raptus divinus, or was it only a profound common sleep? The first seems to me improbable, and if it had been the case, we know that in the greatest freedom from the bonds of the body, or shortly before death, The most perfect clairvoyance often shows itself, that there is no mention of a heavy sickness, but only of a deep sleep. If it had been a lethargic state, that inward sight was only the more probable. The 72 interpreters of the sacred writings look upon this sleep as an ecstasy, and Tertullian says directly that the power of prophecy of the Holy Spirit fell upon him. Another remarkable fact is the building of the Ark of Noah before the flood, which he had long foreseen. Further, Abraham's call to leave his fatherland, Ur, in Chaldea, and to go towards Haran and Canaan. Abraham's visions were numerous, or are the words of the Lord spoken to him to be regarded as a symbolical expression of his inward contemplation? Through these visions, or words as it may be, it was shown to him that he would be blessed and the founder of a great people. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, This land will I give thee to thy seed. The unsophisticated life of a shepherd naturally brings the mind to the highest degree of contemplation, and the more so when the mind is occupied alone with God and divine things. This is especially shown in the history of the pastoral life of the God fearing Israelites not only in the patriarchs, but also afterwards in the age of the kings and judges. Isaac and Jacob had similar visions to those of Abraham, of which the latter ascending to heaven seen by Jacob on his journey to Mesopotamia is a very remarkable instance. We find Genesis 28.10, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took off the stones of that place and put them for his pillow and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, etc., The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, etc. And in thee and in thy seed shall the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and bring with thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and said, Surely the Lord is in his place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. How remarkably has Jacob's dream been fulfilled? The promised land became the possession of the Jews. Through his seed were and are all nations of the earth blessed. Through Christ, who is the heaven's ladder on which the angels ascend and descend, Another and still more remarkable passage is found in the history of Jacob. It is this. Jacob agreed with Laban that he should have all the spotted lambs and kids, which should be produced by those which he singled out from the black ones. Laban was contented, and Jacob became immensely rich. It is worthwhile to quote the whole passage and to draw some conclusions from it concerning the magnetic theory. When Jacob could no longer tend Laban's sheep and wished to depart with his wives and children, Laban said to him, Genesis thirty, twenty-seven to forty-three, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little which thou hadst before I came and it is now increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my arriving. And now when shall I provide for my own house also? And he said, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all the flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle and all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted, and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Every one that is not speckled, and spotted among the goats, and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted, stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, it would it might be according to thy word. And he removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked, and spotted, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, and every one that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and gave them into the hands of his sons. And he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. And Jacob took with him rods of green poplar, and of the hazel and chestnut tree, and pilled white strakes in them, and made the white appear which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had pilled before the flocks and the gutters and the watering troughs when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods, and brought forth cattle ring-straight, speckled and spotted. And Jacob did separate the lambs, and set the faces of the flocks towards the ring-straight, and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flock by themselves, and put them into Laban's cattle. And it came to pass that whenever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle, in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in, so the feeble were Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased exceedingly, and had much cattle, and made servants, and men servants, and camels, and asses. We see from this that even the sheep and goats could be influenced by the staves which Jacob laid before them and the water from which they drank. The fact that mothers influence their children by that which they see has been disputed, notwithstanding that its truths have been demonstrated in all ages and is as deeply founded in the nature of mutual existence as that children may inherit the bodily and mental peculiarities of their parents. That Jacob's sheep were influenced by the peeled wands which he laid with so much art in the water from which they drank, has a deep meaning. Jacob either did this from experience, or some vision or dream taught it to him. And in fact we find Genesis 31.10, And it came to pass at the time that the cattle conceived, that I lifted up mine eyes, and saw in a dream, and behold the rams which leaped upon the cattle were ring speckled, and grizzled. With the water in which... As it were, they reflected themselves, and the wands, they drank in the image which impressed a new form upon their young, and thereby satisfied the imagination as well as the body. We have not space enough here to enter into fully, and to defend the natural theory, by which is explained the manner in which spiritual impressions are even more easily propagated than is generally supposed possible in the matter-of-fact and tangible world, That numerous class of materialists who wish to turn the spirit of holy writ into a subject of everyday life, that it may not appear that there is anything concealed in the sacred book for which they have no understanding, will not be convinced, and for those others it would be superfluous, who under the mild influence of a higher light build at that temple of the eternal spirit which will endure forever. With Moses himself, the great man of God, we find no less remarkable appearances. The visions of Moses were principally dreams, some of them ecstasies, and added to this, he was initiated into the secrets of the Egyptians, whom he far surpassed in miraculous power. And on account of his extraordinary piety and wisdom, was chosen to be the savior of his people from the bondage of Pharaoh. His visions were manifold. Even the whole guidance of his people and their legislature proceeded from the depths of his mind. If we look upon this as the fruits of inward contemplation, or as the consequence of a direct command through the voice of God, as according to the Scriptures, the Almighty spoke directly to Moses. It is in the first case a purely magical contemplation. In the last case, if we rather incline to the belief we shall find confirmation in the idea that a pious mind is open to the divine influence and can perform miraculous actions. Moses received his first vision on Mount Horeb, where he was still tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, Exodus 3, two, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the mist of a bush. And he looked and beheld the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And the Lord said to him, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moses, the prophetic seer, acquainted with the misery of his brethren, and full of religious enthusiasm, with a glowing imagination, was placed in such a position with his father-in-law Jethro in Midian, that he had time and opportunity as a shepherd in the wilderness to sink his mind in religious contemplation. Until he heard the voice of God, and saw the means and ways of becoming the leader and shepherd of his people. His innermost heart was open to the voice and influence of God, who appeared to him as a light in the burning bush which did not consume, and with whom he conversed having covered his face. We see in Moses the inward psychological contest of fear and hope, of vacillation and confidence, of resignation, veneration, and obedience of reliance, and lastly, of enthusiasm, which overcomes all worldly obstacles. He was provided with superhuman powers to command the elements, and to give evidence of the power and glory of God by miracles. Moses passed much time in such ecstasies during his journey in the desert and during his seclusion among the mountains, and was regarded by his people as more than human. The visions of Moses referred to the present and future, as well as to the events passing immediately around him. He not only gave his laws from the mount, but also beheld from thence the sacrifice made to the golden calf. He saw that he could only preserve Israel from returning to idolatry and prepare it for a purer mode of worship by a long isolation in the desert, from the influence of the surrounding pagan nations, and by a severe legislature in Canaan. From these intimations we may direct attention to the visions of Moses his power of transferring the light of prophecy to others as a magnetic rapport, the kinds of sacrifices, blessing with water, oil, and blood, and by the laying on of hands, as well as his remarkable commands against the participation in sorcery, false prophecy, exorcism, and the questioning of the dead. Of some proceedings, similar to magnetism, the most remarkable are the staff with which Moses performed his miracles before Pharaoh and the stretching forth of his hands before which the sea divided. Exodus fourteen sixteen, But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground, to the midst of the sea. The stretching forth of the hands and the miracles wrought thereby are not without a deep meaning. With the staff he struck the rock, and repeat him, and caused water to pour forth, to calm the thirsting and murmuring people. Exodus 17.15, And the Lord say unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the water, and thou shalt smite upon the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And when Amalek came forth and fought against Israel, Moses said to Joshua, Exodus 17, 9, 11, Choose out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. The gift of prophecy appears to have been communicated to the pious elders of Israel through communication with Moses. For we find, Numbers eleven twenty-three to 29 And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and spake unto them, and took off the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the Spirit came upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Ildad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. And they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle. And they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? The various conditions of inward sight are clearly defined in the writings of Moses. When Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses on account of the Ethiopian woman who he had married, they said, Numbers twelve two to 8 Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not also spoken by us? And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud, and stood in the door of the tabernacle, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they came forth. And he said, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you. I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. Thus, therefore, there were among the Israelites, as among all other nations, and especially in our magnetic phenomena, visions, in dreams, or the language of a dream, or dark words and symbols, as in particularly the case in the lower stages of sleepwalking. But in the highest state of vision in the purest minds, as Moses, it is a direct contemplation of truth. In the oral intercourse of the Lord with Moses, and the vision of his form as biblical expressions, we must not take the letter but the meaning of the scriptures. For the Lord speaks in revelation as by light, and not with a mouth, neither is he visible to corporeal eyes. Thus the Lord says at another place, He who beholds me cannot live. This language is the expression or impression of the divine words and the reflection of the eternal light. It is the spiritual communication and revelation of the divinity to mankind, which according to the degree of illumination is variously accepted and understood by men. As in material nature, light produces various effects according as it falls upon near or distant, dense, on thin, hard, or soft. Substances. This language was understood by the prophets and inspired men of all ages, who were certainly unable to render the received light otherwise than in the language of the lips. Although that which they felt was simpler, more impressive, and spiritual than any such interpretation could be, the influence or word of God consists in an influence of the divine light, by which the soul through which it penetrates it, as it were, electrified. God, as the center, only influences the center of all things. That is, the soul and the outward manifestations follow naturally. Not less remarkable is that the bite of the serpents was cured by looking upon a brazen serpent. We find Numbers 21, 4-9 to as follows, And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, and the people spake against God and Moses. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Pray unto the Lord that he take the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live." The visions and prophecies of Balaam, the son of Beor, to whom Balak sent messengers that he should curse Israel, are very remarkable. If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Numbers 22.18 The most remarkable of his predictions is that of the Star of Jacob. Numbers twenty-four, four, ten, sixteen, seventeen, nineteen in which he foretells the advent of Christ. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his parable, and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, He hath said, which hath heard the words of God, and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open, I shall see him, but not now, I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. That not alone the sacred seers had visions is shown by the history of Balaam. Balak, the king of the Moabites, wished, through fear of the Israelites, to join the Midianites. But as neither of the allies had any desire to fight, they wished to have recourse to magic. And as they themselves had no soothsayer, they sent to Balaam at the water of Pethor who was celebrated for his powers as a soothsayer and magician. The messengers came to Balaam with the reward of the soothsayer in their hands. And we may therefore suppose that it was customary to pay for his predictions, and begged him to curse the strange nation. Balaam told them to remain overnight, and in the morning he announced to the messengers that God had not permitted him either to curse the people or to go with them to their country for that the people had been sent by God. Balak, in the belief that he had not sent sufficient presents, sent others still more magnificent, that Balam might be prevailed upon to go to him and curse the people. Balam, a mixture of faith and vacillation, of love, of truth and avarice, of true prophecy and the black art, said to the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot... Go beyond the word of the Lord my God, to do less or more. And yet, after he had communicated with the Lord during the night, he arose and saddled his ass to go to the prince of the Moabites. And at a later time he gave to these enemies of Israel the counsel, how they could lead them to idolatry. Now follows the history of the perfectly somnambulic Balaam. He, being inclined to inward visions, became at variance with himself wishing to serve God and Mammon. His conscience racked him, and God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against them. The ass, seeing the angel with the drawn sword standing in the way, turned aside into the field, and being forced by Balaam, crushed his foot against the wall, upon which he struck him, and there being no room to turn aside to the right or left, the ass fell and Balaam's anger being roused, he struck her with his staff the third time. Lastly, the ass spoke to him, upbraiding him with his treatment, and he so far recovered himself that he, instead of the ass, saw the angel. But his conscience tortured him. He acknowledged his sin and wished to return. But the angel permitted his journey with the condition that he should not speak otherwise, than as the Lord placed in his mouth... This he kept against all promises and attempts of Balak, so that he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face towards the wilderness, and according to his inspiration, blessed the people of Israel instead of cursing it, foretelling its increase, and afterwards prophesying the star of Jacob. This false prophet had no genuine inspiration, but he was and acted like one of our magnetic seers. For he always went on one side in silence when he wished to prophesy that he might concentrate his thoughts inwardly without outward distraction, which true prophets do not. Two, the inward eye was open while the outward senses were closed. The man whose eyes are opened, for evidently the angel with the sword was a vision, and the speaking ass was nothing wonderful to him, which certainly could not be the case in the usual waking state. According to the Arabic, Balaam means the man with the closed eyes, which occasioned Tholak to compare Balaam's visions with magnetic ecstasy. Three, Balaam was so little able to distinguish his subjective visions from the objective reality that the speaking ass did not surprise him, and he, when he had recovered himself, saw the angel standing before the ass and bowed his countenance before him. Four. He used certain means of producing ecstasia, which true prophets do not, for he secluded himself and must have been well aware of the influence of locality, as he was led by different places to produce visions which should be acceptable to Balak. He must even have been accustomed to use magical means, for it is said that when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not, as at other times, to seek for enchantments, but he set his face towards the wilderness. 5. Lastly, Balaam's ecstasies were uncertain and various, like those of magnetism, their ideas and expressions often symbolical. As, for instance, we find, He crouched, he laid down as a lion, and as a great lion. The false prophet then returned home, and appears at a later time in the Midianite camp, where he at length fell by those Israel-Tish bands who were Sent by Moses against them during the age of the judges and kings, dreams and prophetic visions were synonymous in numbers twenty seven eighteen twenty one we find that when Moses prayed for a worthy successor. The Lord said unto Moses, Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hands upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and Eleazar shall ask counsel for him. I have already quoted many passages from the Bible in which the dreams and prophetic visions were synonymous. They even understood, under the term dreamer, a prophet, so well known and important were their dreams. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by visions, nor by the prophets. 1 Samuel 28.5-6 If there arise among you a prophet or dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and he saith, Let us go after other gods. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord proveth you, to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 14.1-3 From this we may conclude that others had prophetic dreams, and were no prophets, and were not pure in heart. It would occupy too much space to enumerate all the visions and actions of the prophets, Yet some of them cannot be passed over in silence. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we find the history of Saul, who, after the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him, became melancholy and troubled, and could only be relieved by music. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, that he shall play with his hands, and thou shalt be well. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse, and said, Send me David thy son. When the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. When Saul saw the host of the Philistines, his heart failed him, and he called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by illumination, nor by prophets. If there arise you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. Saul was seeking after signs and wonders, asking Samuel concerning his lost ass, seeking the witch of Endor and consulting deceitful dreams. Samuel said unto him, Wherefore dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee? Moreover, the Lord will deliver Israel with thee into the hands of the Philistines. In the books of Samuel, who even as a boy had ecstatic visions, we find several prophetic visions. Those of Samuel and David were the most remarkable, and Saul also prophesied till the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. The history of David, who, when in years, could not become warm, although he was covered with clothes, had been already mentioned. A virgin was obliged to sleep in the king's arms and caress him, by which means the old king was warmed. One kings, one one. Among the prophets of the old covenants, none were more elevated than Elijah, whose name expresses the idea of all classes of higher being. Besides teaching the most vital doctrines, we find a history recorded which is of great weight in regard to magnetic treatment, and as a remarkable instance of recalling apparently dead persons to life, deserves a literal quotation. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee? O thou man of God, art thou come unto me to call my sin, to remember, and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom, and carried him up into the loft, where he abode, and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord, and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn, by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried unto the Lord, and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house, and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See thy son liveth. 1 Kings 17.17-24 Of the same kind, but still more remarkable, is the striking instance of powerful magnetic influence in the account of the recalling to the life of the Shunammite woman's child by the prophet Elisha, 2 Kings 4, 18-37. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers, and he said unto his father, My head, my head. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon, and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door upon him, and went out. She now went to the man of God, who lived on Mount Carmel, to seek aid. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thine hand, and go thy way. If you meet any man, salute him not, and if any salute thee, answer him not again, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them, and laid the staff upon the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him, and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up, and lay upon the child, and put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she was coming unto him, he said, Take up thy son. What may we learn from this, before all things, that it required a man of God like Elisha. Secondly, that he must have well been acquainted with the transmission of the power through conductors, or he would not have sent his servant on before with his staff to awaken the child by merely laying it on his face. Thirdly, the command which he gave his servant, not to address any one on the way, has deep signification. He was namely to direct his attention solely to the important object of raising the dead person, and not to allow himself to be turned aside from it by any cause whatever. A proof how necessary and important it is that the magnetic physician be entirely free from interruption in order to occupy himself solely with his patient. Fourthly, the manipulation in this case is unsurpassable. Fifthly, it is a proof that patience and application are requisite in magnetic treatment, that no tree can be overthrown with one blow. For Alicia rose a short time and walked to and fro in the house. And it was only in the second attempt that the child sneezed. We can also learn from Elisha and Saul that the clear conditions of the inward senses may be especially called forth by music. For when Elisha was to prophesy to the kings of Israel and Judah against the Moabites, it said, But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. That the curative effect of laying on the hands was known to them is shown by the passage in 2 Kings v. 11, where the Syrian captain said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. We often read that the bones of saints have performed miracles after their death and have cured sickness. This was also the case with Elisha, for we read 2 Kings 13.20. And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men. And they cast the man into the sepulchre of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood upon his feet. If, however, it were supposed that in the earliest ages men were only capable of prophecy and inward contemplation, we may quote instances from the Bible of women, as for instance the witch of Endor, to whom Saul went in person, the prophetess Huldah, Deborah, and the woman Lepidoti, etc. Let us turn again to the history of the people of Israel. And to the early Oriental nations, and compare the magic among them with that of later ages. We find many and striking differences. In the first place, as I have already remarked, the Israelites stood along among all surrounding pagan nations, and magic among them had a peculiar form. For although the Jews had spent so long a time in Egypt, they carried with them but little of its magic that is, of the real theurgic magical arts. Which are perfected by natural powers and human inventions. The magical ecstasies and miracles were rather inspirations of divine power, and the influence of the black art, producing supernatural effects by natural means, was forbidden under severe penalties. In heathendom, the contrary is everywhere the case, as there the true knowledge of the divine nature was either entirely wanting, or was distorted by traditions, or obscured by mysteries. As, for instance, In Egypt, Ether, the Dark Knight, was worshipped as the unknown being in silence, while the Jews hailed the light of the unity of God with hymns. The power of natural principles was dominant in the whole of heathendom and dragged down mind to the earth. The true divine magical influence was hidden from the erring races by a veil through which only a few stray rays penetrated. The light shone in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. Heathendom was only capable, says Hamburger, of receiving a few single rays, as it were, obliquely. While the chosen people of God, who descended from Shem, enjoyed not a peripheric, but a central revelation of God. They were a people dedicated to the Lord. He had chosen them as his people from all the nations of the earth. Israel was destined not so much to grasp the outward glory of God, as to comprehend his inward nature, to be led still deeper into the holiness of the divine being. This could not, however, be achieved at once, and if it was not Israel alone who was to be blessed, but all nations of the earth were to be blessed through Israel, this could only be brought about by degrees and through time. Longing or love, says Schliegel, is the beginning and root of all higher knowledge and divine wisdom. Patience in seeking, in faith, and in the struggle of life, is the middle of the way. But hope alone, in the end, remains here for man. The necessary epoch of preparation of gradual progression may not be overstepped or thrown aside in this noble struggle of man. Until this is sufficiently observed, the character and even the history of the Hebrew nation cannot be understood. The whole being of this people was built upon hope, and the highest point of their inner life was placed in a far distant future. And this also consists a principal difference between the sacred record of the Hebrews and those of other ancient Asiatic nations. In the oldest records of the other nations, in the really historical portions, the eye is always directed towards the glorious past, with a melancholy feeling of that which the world and man had lost. Of all the abundance of these touching recollections, and of the most ancient records, Moses, in his revelation to the Israelitish people, made but sparing mention, wisely choosing only that which was indispensable and necessary for his people, and the divine intentions concerning it. As these writings from those the first lawgiver who raised his nation from the nature worship of Egypt, to those of the prophetic king and psalmist, And to the last admonitory words in the desert are, according to their contents and the inward sense, prophetic writings. The nation may be called a prophetic one in the highest sense, and is accepted as such historically, having been and become so in its existence and strange fortunes. The guidance of the Jewish nation, says Molitor, gives the most clear proof of the truth of their God and religion. In all other nations, there were certainly oracles. They were questioned on all important points, and no action of life was undertaken without the advice of the gods being asked. In no single pagan religion do we find a truly positive divine guidance. Man stands alone in his own power. It is far different in the Israelitish people, which was nothing in itself and alone, but whose whole being and guidance were evidently the work of the divinity. Where is there people which has such an ethical legislature? Where shall we find a nation in whom humility, obedience, and the most childlike resignation to God is made the first duty of life, chastisements regarded as a proof of love, and man guided to his destination in humility and suffering? We certainly find in heathendom trials, but they are only trials in valiantly overcoming the temptations of evil. Nowhere do we find a word of praise of humility and self-denial. Moses, for instance, is called the Most Humble of Men. Is this praise which was ever bestowed upon heathen heroes? Kabbalah, Part 3, page 116. A material difference is evident between the israeli tish and heathen seers. If even the magical appearances proceed universally from natural capabilities, here as elsewhere— if the imagination and sympathy and the outward natural influences produce similar effects, and if the Israelites learned much from the Egyptian mysteries, as, for instance, the prophetic schools, the inspiring dances and songs, yet we shall find as regards the motives and effects so great a difference that it deserves to be remarked upon here. Having already given the particular signs of the true prophets, the signs of the false prophets are as follows. 1. The magician, the Indian Brahmin, the mysterious priest, produces ecstasy through his own will and by self-chosen means, attaining at the same time his supposed union with God. Moses and the true Israelitish prophets received the call to serve God unexpectedly. 2. The magician raises himself, through his own powers, to a higher state than the surrounding world. He therefore intentionally secludes himself, and this seclusion even becomes a command. Through this follow exclusions and gradations of rank, as the Indian and Egyptian castes, which produce a decided influence upon all the relations of the world and mind. Moses and the prophets are in seclusion, rather from inward passive fear. Suddenly the call is heard, and they follow in humility, with countenance covered with their garments. The redemption of the people of Moses did not proceed from his own will, and he himself does not desire any preeminence. He does not separate the classes, but he separates the united people from the blind heathendom and sanctifies it to the Lord. He himself is the announcement of the belief in God's universal government, of future rewards and punishments, of the love of God, of order, and of justice. 3. Contempt for the world and pride of their own worth in a life of contemplation are found in the magical seers. A wise use of life and obedient service of God and a continual remembrance of man's sinful nature cause the true prophet to pray for divine aid, illumination and knowledge of the truth, and for the power to obey a higher will than his own. To the Brahmin, for instance, this earth is a hell, an existence of trouble, To the prophet it is a school where he may gain true happiness and peace through the fulfillment of his duties. 4. The magicians are themselves lawgivers. The prophets are childlike and obedient disciples, the declarers and expounders of the revelations of God. 5. There we find the means of producing ecstasy, with contempt and renouncement of the world and unnatural chastisement of the body. Here the world is arranged for a regulated use of life. The prophet uses no means to produce ecstasy. He utters the received word of God without preparation, and imparts it to his brethren. He lives with his fellow men, and does not mortify the body. 6. The vision itself is, in the highest ecstasy of the magicians, a kind of radiance, sunk in which the world, with its signification, and perhaps even the inward constitution of the mind— may be clearly shown to them as to our clairvoyance. But their lips are silent in the delight of the ecstasy and the dazzling radiance of a self-illumination. From this cause arise the many confusions of truth and falsehood, of impressions of the mind and pictures of the fancy in broken and inharmonic shapes, of spasms and contortions of the body and soul, as they appear fleetingly and in confused masses in our somnambulists. Their visions are like those of the somnambulists, not always to be depended on and require an explanation, not being always understood in their proper sense. In the Prophets, visions are illuminations and reflections of a gentle divine light upon the mirror of a pure mind, which retains its individuality and remains in conscious dependence and connection with God and the outer world. Their visions refer to the common affairs of life, religious and civil. The prophet speaks, and his words are doctrines of truth, clearly expressed to all ages of mankind, and intelligible to every one. He seeks and finds his happiness, not in ecstasy, but in the pleasures of his mission, in spreading the word of God, not in secluded reflection, but in the communication and active cooperation with his fellow men. The true prophet is, therefore, not lost in inward contemplation, nor does he forget himself in the world but remains in active communion with God and with his neighbors in word and deed. Lastly, 7. As in the varieties of inspiration, the motive and procedure differ. So do also the object and the result. The Indian magicians complain of the gradual degeneracy of the mind from its original brilliancy. In the different periods of the world, in perishable nature, and the realms of death, and deplore the misery connected with this, the discord, the confusion and distraction of the mind, as we find it to be the case among the various heathen nations. On the contrary, how much has not the illumination of the mind, through true prophets in respect to religion and the arts, increased and risen in construction and harmony by a steady progress? Engrafted upon Judaism, the spirit of Christianity, which is spread over the West, extends its power still further. And while in heathendom, everything is sinking into unconsciousness and night. Through unfruitful communion here, by active belief, mountains are removed and seeds sown in mutual assistance, whose fruits will only ripen to their use in the other world, towards which our endeavors should be directed. The object of life is, to the magician, his inward contemplation. The true prophet lives in faith and not in visions. Historians and philosophers of modern times have regarded the ecstatic phenomena of the Israeli prophets, and especially of the Apostles, as identical with magnetic clairvoyance. Towards the explanation and closer consideration of this subject, we may add the following to the quotation already given. True prophets are especially called by God and influenced by the Holy Spirit to announce the will and counsel of God. They are called seers, men of God, servants and messengers of the Lord, angels, guardians. The distinguishing marks of a true prophet of the Old Testament were, 1. That their prophecies agreed with the teachings of Moses and the patriarchs. Deuteronomy 13.1 2. That they should prove true. Deuteronomy 18.21 Jeremiah 28.9 3. That they should perform miracles, but only when a particular covenant was to be formed, or a reformation of a degenerate age should be brought about. 4. That they should agree with other prophets. Is 8.2 Jeremiah 26.18 5. That they should lead a blameless life. Jeremiah 27.4 Micah 2.11 6. That they should show holy zeal for God's works. Jeremiah 26.13 7. That they should have an impressive delivery. Jeremiah 21.28.29 Their duty consisted in firstly instructing the people, especially when the priests, whose duty it particularly was, were negligent, secondly, in replacing the worship of God upon its former footing. 2 Kings 1718 Ezekiel three seventeen. Thirdly, to foretell future events, and therefore also to ask the counsel of God. One Kings fourteen two three twenty two five eight. Fourthly, to pray for the people and avert the threatened punishment. Genesis twenty seven Kings nineteen two, and fifthly, that they should commit the will of God to writing. One Chron twenty nine nine. The same, on the whole, may be said concerning the apostles, the messengers and announcers of the living word. They are called messengers because Christ himself chose and sent them all over the world to bring about the reconciliation with God and to gather together the chosen. They did not offer themselves for this service, but Christ called them directly and verbally imparted the teaching to them that the Messiahs had appeared and given them the power of working miracles through the word of the Lord. Their new teachings, namely, are very different to those of prophets of the Old Covenant. Repent and believe in the gospel, by which you will show that you love God above all, and your neighbor as yourself. Their life itself is a faithful following in the footsteps of their Lord and Master, in word and deed, in action and suffering. If we bear these definitions well in mind, no one can find it difficult to distinguish between magical and magnetic clairvoyance and prophetic inspiration not to overestimate the former and not to depreciate the latter. For although the appearances are similar at first sight, yet the difference is easily perceptible if we regard them according to their meaning, form, and their intention or object, according to the originating cause, the difference consists in the magical and magnetic clairvoyance being in most cases of human origin and having grown up in deceased ground although it may be developed by the art of the physician or by accident, or by its own innate power. An abnormal state of health is, however, always the result, and sleep with a suspension of the outward senses is the first requisite. If there be a greater predisposition in certain individuals, there must be a physiological cause in the body itself. And if circumstances assist sleepwalking in others, it belongs to the kingdom of nature, which grasps the clairvoyant in strong bands and still remains the ruling influence, even when he reaches the higher states. Prophetic inspiration is not produced by nature or by man. Its impulse is the Holy Spirit and the divine will. The divine call comes unexpectedly, and the physical condition is not regarded. The physical are never the influencing powers, but remain dependent upon the mind, which uses them as the instruments to purely spiritual ends. A sleep life with deadened functions of the senses and physical crises are not found here. Secondly, magnetic clairvoyance treats immediately of the health of the individual life, or at least of some circle of human existence. The clairvoyant directs his attention at will upon subjects chosen by himself, at least in most cases, or he expounds his own visions, conducts his affairs or the affairs of those around him, as if influenced outwardly, without any active enduring self-reliance or activity beneficial to the community. Human nature, affection, and inclination are never entirely wanting in the magical circle of the seer and the working of his will and belief shows no supernatural and enduring effect, either upon himself or those around him. The true prophet is subject to no change of form, but always exhibits similar actions, announcing him who is the beginning and the end, and who has made all things. The prophets are not alone seers, but instruments of the divine will. To teach the true knowledge of God with the extension of his kingdom— which is truth and love, is his sole occupation, and he strives against lies and wickedness to overcome the world. That which is perishable and worldly, egotism and sensuality, health, riches, and honor among men, and dominion over others, does not regard him. The prophet does not preach a present but a future happiness, and the true peace of God in the hope of eternal life in the divine presence and not from personal impulse and pleasure or from worldly views, but through God's inspiration, as the willing vessel of a continuous illumination, as the model in action and in life, as the servant and mediator between God and all men, between time and eternity, between heaven and earth through prayer. In word and deed the prophet remains in living and uninterrupted communion with God and his fellow beings. He does not seclude himself, does not sink into his own visions, feelings, and personal concerns. The prophets regard not individuality, but the fate of nations and universal events, and therefore they are able to perform supernatural and superhuman actions, strengthened by the all-powerful influence of their will and faith, as well upon their own bodies as upon others, and over all outward nature and its temporal and local boundaries. Sudden conversions and changes of belief, immediate cures of difficult and tedious complaints, warnings of threatening dangers and assistance to those requiring it at a distance, comfort and strength in trial and suffering are proofs of this divine higher power. Thirdly, clairvoyance is a phenomena arising unintentionally and on the part of the seer without object. Well, the object is the temporal well-being, the restoration of health or some discovery of secrets, nourishment for curiosity and inquiry. Possibly in the highest and rarest states, the inspiration may strive after a higher and nobler object. In the prophets, as we have said, the object is the revelation of the divine word to man, the extension of God's kingdom on earth, the ennobling and happiness of the human race. Impelled by the spirit of God, on whose assistance they rely, their endeavour is no other than to spread the light of truth to strengthen the struggling against evil, to awaken love and mutual aid and assistance, to spread peace and universal happiness, personal advantage self-interest is not regarded by the men of God. the foundation of their power is faith in the power of God, and they obey all commandments through love, the first of all virtues. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. Gal V. 22. And God gives wisdom to those who love him, and love is his banner above them. The people of Israel give evidence of these differences. One, that the causes of the inward visions were really objective, that therefore there is something else besides reason which influences and acts upon human existence, and moreover directly upon the innermost one of the mind. While the peripheric side of the daily and natural senses is either totally inactive or at least stands in a very subordinate position. Two, that there is a high spiritual region which acts positively and dominantly upon human reason and makes revelations to it which are not of usual occurrence or mere flights of the imagination, illusions or hallucinations of abnormal functions of the brain. The hand of the Lord came upon them. Three, the ignoring or even the sophistical denial of a self-deifying rationalism is shown by the whole history of magic and of magnetism, especially that of the Israelites, to be just as shallow as that pantheistic natural philosophy which confuses all things together, and regards the prophets and saints merely as somnambulic seers in a somewhat higher state of tuluric sleep-life. 4. Notwithstanding this, however, these appearances have the greatest resemblance to those of magic and magnetism, as well in the anthropological expression as in the objective representation, as also the manner of influencing, as we have seen, clearly reminds us of the magnetic manipulation. While the prophetic revelations correspond to the purest forms of clairvoyance, where dream visions and foretelling of events and fortunes are met with, We shall still find, particularly in the Old Covenant, many preparations and conditions which we have met with among the magicians of the East. Seclusion in abode, solitary places, fasting and contemplation are seen in most of the prophets. They speak, like clairvoyance, of an inner divine light, and of a radiance which illuminates them, but they recognize this light as the Eternal Spirit. Whose hand is upon them, and as the psalmist says, they walk in the light of his countenance. They describe the divine light as a suddenly awakened perception, and often in the most impressive symbols, of which the most remarkable is the vision of Daniel, chapter 10, near the great water, Hedekel, which may serve as an example. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of the His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and feet like in colour to polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand, and to chasten thyself before thy Lord. Thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, be the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? Then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. Then he said, Knowest thou wherefrom I come unto thee, and now I will return. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. As an explanation of this vision, we may quote the following passage from Passavant: Such a condition, such a penetration and illumination of the human mind, can only be explained by the original relationship of the created and the creator. The created mind does not exist for and in itself, but only in connection with the absolute being. As the mind is more perfect, so is the communion freer and more intimate between it and the Creator. And man in such a case is the free instrument, the coadjutor of God. That which may be said of human nature in general and of all the mental powers of perception and performance applies as well to religion, in which the human mind is active and much freer from earthly nature and from the boundaries of time and space. If we therefore say that the highest magical influence is that when the human mind becomes a divine agent, we shall be justified in believing that the highest magical perception is a divinely illuminated prophetic power a spiritual contemplation which is awakened and guided by the Divine Spirit. If we, therefore, regard the intimate communion between the creation and the Creator as the end and object of created spirits, we may also regard the sacred power of the seer as an anticipation of a higher and perfect state, in which man perceives himself as he is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13.9 and in which his spiritual vision reaches such a degree of perfection that he is no longer fettered by the laws of an inferior nature. But as man must raise himself to the good as well as receive it, this law will be repeated as man rises to various stages of the universe, and is illuminated by its light in various ways. Regarded in this manner, the power of the divine seer cannot be looked upon as isolated from other spiritual powers which may come upon man as something foreign to his nature, but rather as a certain form of a normal or regenerated mental activity. The soul of man, the similitude of God, becomes in the measure as this similitude is unobscured, the reflection of the divine being. Passavant, Lieben's Magnetismus, 2nd edition, page 109 it is only requisite to mention in a cursory manner that God made use of the nobility of mind in Israel to carry out His plans for the redemption of mankind, and that the people, inclined to heathen gods, to disobedience and murmuring, were only to be led to the final destination through long sufferings and severe penalties. The road from Ur in Chaldea to Canaan, which the patriarch Abraham followed, was a long series of hardships when leading from Egypt to the Promised Land. On account of their continued hesitation between the service of the Lord and that of the heathen gods, the people of Israel were compelled to wander for forty years in the desert, were carried into captivity to Babylon, and their city and temple destroyed, till at length the fullness of misery fell upon them. If Israel is the people representing man before God, it is not less the pearl of perfection as well as the mirror of human perversion. Which always strives outwardly to seek in the variety of nature and in distraction of the senses that happiness which is not to be found here upon earth. The happiness of peace and the glory of paradise are only revealed by the divine word, and to participate in this, the human mind must acquire two virtues humility in obedience to the law and superhuman hope of reaching the goal beyond earthly existence. To learn this obedience to the law, the people of Israel underwent greater trials than any other and was led to the most resigned obedience. To them, as to no other people, the laws were revealed to a chosen leader in words of thunder, in order that they should obey them in the innermost thought and not merely hear the words outwardly and superficially. The sacrifices and festivals were not to serve as moments of rejoicing, but they were to be a symbolical manner of regarding the coming of the Messiah. As the flower bud looks forward to the coming sun, the ark, the cherubims, the holy of holies, the pillar of fire, are, like Solomon's temple, symbolical manifestations, pointing towards the advent of the Lord. That the whole mosaic system was symbolical and hieroglyphical is admitted by all acquainted with this subject. And the following words clearly show this. Make everything in the fashion of that which thou hast seen on the mount. Moses, the man of God, therefore represents in the history of Israel the commencement of a new period of religious development. The formula and ceremonies of the laws were intended to awaken man and direct his attention to the words of revelation. But long was the interval between the wanderings and the troubles of servitude which followed from the smiting of the firstborn in Egypt and the lightnings on Mount Sinai, to King David, with whom a third period commences. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 1 Samuel 16.12 His father's shepherd and chosen by the Lord to be the ruler of his people. His obedience to God and his unshaken hope did not only acquire for him the name of a man according to God's heart, but he, of the tribe of Judah and born at Bethlehem, was a foreshadowing of Christ. He was king and prophet and passed through many sufferings. As a servant of God, he endeavored to lead the people of Israel to the Lord at Jerusalem, where at length the mild radiant light of the divine Prince of Peace shone in the night of death from the cross upon the world. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in the bondage under the elements of the world. Galet 4.1 But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galat 4 4. The advent of Christ on earth was not an advent of chance, not a phenomenon of nature, but a long determined revelation by God.
1: Who's gonna kill this sacred cow? You were never political, anyhow. Since when did you start trusting in the government? Since when was it okay? To ridicule and shame your neighbor Your opinions have become Your opinions have become As fickle as artificial flavors What matters most to you What the TV host told you to do Or a moral compass that Points true north or true Who's gonna kill this sacred cow You were never religious anyhow Since when did you kiss The ring on the hand of the Pope? Since when do we need Pharmaceuticals to cope? Your soul has become Ever-loving soul has become As brittle as communion wafers What matters most to you What the Holy Ghost told you to do Or a moral compass that Points true north Oh true I'm gonna kill gonna kill this sacred cow bureaucrats think i'm non-essential anyhow since when has our culture become so lowbrow it's all touchscreens and nobody has any know-how your idea of fun your idea of fun is taking a thousand and one photos of your duck face that is most you. What the celebrities most told you was cool Or a moral compass that points true north, oh true I'm gonna kill this sacred cow I'm gonna kill your sacred cow I'm gonna kill your sacred cow cow. I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill your sacred cow. I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill your sacred cow. I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill your sacred cow. I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill your sacred cow. I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill. Your sacred cow. I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill. Your sacred cow. I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill. I'm gonna kill your sacred cow.